Hello. Welcome. Glad you could join me. We're a few episodes in, and I wanted to see how you're enjoying the podcast so far. Uh, I know that I'm having fun with these 21st century fireside chats with my handsome self. I'd love to hear from you. Is there anything you'd like to hear more of or heavens forfend less of? Let me know. You can hit me up on Instagram and Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I and use the hashtag HeadOnHistory. And if you are enjoying the podcast, do feel free to leave a review with iTunes. But I did want to check in with you, the listeners. After all, you're the reason I am doing this podcast. Now that we have the social media stuff out of the way, Let's dive into the main course. I don't know why I used a food reference there, but oh well. Last time, we left off with the beginnings of what later would be called the Rashidun Caliphate, or the Caliphate of the Rightly Guided Ones. And for those of you who are following along, Rashidun is the Arabic word for Rightly Guided Ones. Now, Abu Bakr defined the Caliphate through his actions as one of guardianship. He preserved the unity of the nascent Ummah by fighting in the apostasy wars, by ensuring that the community stayed together. The community forged by Muhammad remained one community. Omar, on the other hand, fleshed out the internal structure of what would develop into a full-blown empire. He was the one that appointed ministers and uh, bureaucrats to oversee different aspects of this growing state. By the time of Umar's death, the caliphate had penetrated deep into the very empires whose conflict set the stage for the coming of Islam, that is, the Byzantines and the Sasanians. On his deathbed in 644, Omar appointed a committee of Ali, Abdul Rahman ibn Auf, Saad ibn Abi Waqas, Uthman ibn Affan, Zubair ibn al-Awan, and Talha. Yes, that's a lot of complicated Arab names, but it's okay, follow along. These people were to pick the new caliph from amongst themselves. Umar was very keen to avoid the strife and tension that followed Muhammad's death. The others all found in favor of either Uthman or Ali, and this left Abdul Rahman as the arbiter. In a public setting at a mosque giving a sermon, Abdul Rahman declares his loyalty to Uthman and declares Uthman the Khalif. Ali publicly gives allegiance, but he does so begrudgingly. Now, the Shiatul Ali, that is the followers of Ali, were pretty dismayed. Several times now, Ali had been passed over for a position that many in the community believed was rightly his. For the Shiatul Ali, the Caliphate needed to be hereditary. It was, after all, the prophetic lineage of Muhammad that was supposed to lead the community. Now, Several reported that Muhammad himself had actually appointed Ali when he gave his speech saying, O people, Allah the Most Kind, the Omniscient, has told me that no apostle lives to more than half the age of him who had preceded him. I think I am about to be called to die, and thus I must respond. He goes on to say, Of whomsoever I have been master, Ali here is to be his master. O Allah, be a supporter of whomever supports Ali and an enemy of whomever whoever opposes him and divert the truth to Ali.
Now, this eventually comes to be known as the Hadith of Khum. What's significant about this is that Muslims started to record what Muhammad had said or done. If the Quran is the holy text of Muslims, then the sayings of Muhammad known as the Hadith, should be recognized as a sort of secondary source of wisdom for Muslims. Now, the problem is that unlike the Qur'an, many of the Hadith were recorded years after Muhammad's death, and many people claim to have heard him say all sorts of things that just happened to line up with whatever it was they were trying to do. In other words, a lot of Hadiths became a way for rulers to justify their actions, and even later scholars use Hadiths to sort of explain contemporaneous conflicts. Later, Muslims would actually develop a systematic process of authenticating the Hadith, and we'll see a kind of historic process or a science of history emerge out of that. But we're going to talk about that in a later episode. For now, what we should note and recall is that people were citing this speech in support of Ali. Now, the argument comes down to actually one word, Mawala. This can mean master in Arabic, but those who supported Uthman and the two previous caliphs, and who would later become known as, as the Sunni, they would contend that this actually refers to befriending Ali in the context of a battle. And it was uh, meant to be a way of appeasing these disgruntled Yemeni soldiers. So they put it within a historical context. The supporters of Ali, on the other hand, claim that this is a clear indication that Ali was meant to succeed Muhammad. And the problem is, is the word maula can actually mean master, but can also refer to someone who is a commander in a specific moment, as well as someone that you were meant to befriend or court. So the hadith isn't entirely clear. But regardless of how we actually interpret Muhammad's speech, it's important to note that historically, both parties actually accepted all the caliphs at this point in time. Even Ali himself swore allegiance to them, though they had disagreements. It wasn't until much later that Sunnism or Shiism really developed. In reality, while there were differences on who was meant to lead, in the end, all four of what is eventually going to be called the Rashidun Khalifs, Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali, were accepted as Khalifs. So in the end, Uthman was elected by council, and he was a different Khalif than the previous two. Though he was pious and, and quite strict in his belief, just like Abu Bakr and Uthman and Omar, and lived quite simply, he also had a tendency of favoring his family members. Indeed, one could say that he was a little bit of a nepotist, and so he appointed many members of his own tribe to various governorships. One of his family members from his tribe, known as the Banu Umayyah, Muawiyah was appointed actually by Umar as the governor of Syria, and he had become an important figure in the Muslim community. Muawiyah had consolidated a great deal of power, and under Uthman, he was allowed to also build a navy. Uthman also uh, appointed several of his family members to march deep into the Maghreb, that is, North Africa, and conquer territories all the way up the coast, the northern coast of Africa, up to 
the Iberian Peninsula, expanding the Muslim Empire to its farthest reaches. Uthman's reign was one of the most prosperous reigns of any of the caliphates. Because Uthman came from a merchant family, he was able to really develop the economy of this new nascent Muslim dynasty and empire. And unlike Omar, who was very somewhat Puritan when it came to money, Uthman was much more comfortable opening up avenues of trade. And so under him, the the state reached its height when it came to money. But one of the biggest flaws that Uthman had was his nepotism. Uthman appointed several members of his family, and one of the issues was that Marwan was appointed as his secretary, and Marwan was a family member of his. Now, Uthman did a lot of great things, too. Uthman uh, consolidated the Quran that Abu Bakr had finalized at the death of Muhammad as the Quran. Uthman made it canonical. He made one copy, made it the authoritative copy, and then spread it throughout the Middle East. But his appointment of family members became a serious issue for the Muslim uh, Ummah. And in particular in North Africa and Egypt, where he had just expanded the territories to. Abdullah ibn Sa'd was appointed governor of Egypt, and he was told to maintain the peace there. But the Egyptians were rebellious against Uthman, specifically because Uthman kept appointing family members, that he was beginning to develop a sort of nascent aristocracy, an Arab aristocracy that favored one family, that is the Banu Umayya. And so Abdullah ibn Sa'd was recalled by Uthman in order to negotiate some type of deal, in order to come to some solution that would deal with this conflict. And in that moment, Ibn Sa'd's second-in-command, Muhammad bin Hudayfa, overthrew Abdullah ibn Sa'd and took Egypt for himself in a coup d'etat. And when he did this, he then marched with 1,000 Egyptians on Medina, which was the home of the Khalif. Now, the Muslim empire at this particular time was simple. There were no palaces, there were no rulers. Even the Khalif lived a simple life. Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman all lived like Muhammad did. That is, in simple dwellings, with not a lot of riches, not bought, no bodyguards, easily accessible to everyone. So even though they were Khalifs, there was this egalitarianness to the community. You could access the Khalif at any point. And so these Egyptian rebels actually lay siege to Uthman's house. There were guards outside of his door in order to keep him safe, Muslim soldiers. But the Egyptian rebels climbed in through the back window while, um, while Uthman was sleeping and struck a blow against his head. It was a severe blow, at which point his wife, Nayala, threw herself on his body and screamed in order to protect him. They swung their sword and cut off several of her fingertips. The second blow finally ended the life of Uthman. He was assassinated in 656, July 656. And so this is interesting that we see that two of the Khalifs now have been assassinated. Umar was killed by Firuz, the Persian slave, and Uthman now killed by these rebels who were angry at the way Uthman was administrating the Ummah by appointing his family members. And so 
These, when the, when the women screamed and, and her fingers were cut off, the guards were alerted and they rushed in and the rebels escaped, but Uthman was already dead. Uthman was ultimately a family man. His legacy is one of a little bit of polarizing uh, nature. Some, for example, later Shia sources really dislike him as a sort of usurper, while Sunnis regarded him contemporaneously, regardless of who people backed or who they wanted to be caliph, most of the Muslim community had accepted him as their leader and caliph. And he was believed to be an upright, a pious man who brought the uh, Islamic community to its height in prosperity, expanded its borders. He was a humanitarian. He had a custom that every Friday he would uh, take... Uh, slaves and free them because in islam there is an injunction that one must free slaves wherever you find them he developed the institutions that would look after widows and orphans and like his predecessors he would give from the bait al-mal or the uh, public treasury to charity he would give that money back out to the people he was patient and kind and he uh, loved his family deeply and that was also his flaw that he tended to appoint family members by appointing family members he started to hint at a sort of aristocracy or monarchy or a dynastic succession that most muslims couldn't abide by the egyptian rebels in particular developed a sect all their own they became what eventually is called the harajites that is a puritan brand of islam that argued that the caliphs had gone wrong that they had made a mistake in developing the community in the way that they did that it had become too much of a state too much of a monarchy that there was too much politics involved and that the community had to return to the simpler times of muhammad and so they were supporters of ali they wanted to see ali become the new caliph these harajites would then go on to become a thorn in the side of many later caliphs but the death of uthman divided the community the followers of Uthman wanted the assassins to be apprehended, while others were happy that now Ali had the chance to take over as Khalif. And Ali's election into Khalif was actually quite interesting. And so these various groups got together, both the rebels in uh, from Egypt, the people of Kufa, the Medinans, especially the Ansar. The Ansar we talked about a couple episodes back, or the helpers were the Muslim converts of Medina, who were very keen on seeing Ali get elected, partly because of the frustration that most of the Khalifs all came out of the, basically the noble class of Mecca, that is the Quraysh. That up until now, despite talks of a sort of egalitarian religion in Islam, most of the caliphs were all part of the old ruling class. They were the old guard. Sure, they had converted early on. Abu Bakr, Omar, and Uthman were all early converts to Islam. But they were still part of the Quraysh, the very tribe that the Ansar help the Muslims fight against. And so Ali was an opportunity to break that, even though he was also of the Quraysh, and even though he was also of that same noble birth, there was this idea that by being the son-in-law and cousin of Muhammad, that he would be more on the side of the Ansar. And so Ali was offered the caliphate, 
please become Khalif. And he rejected it the first time, and he said, I'm not interested. I'll be the counsel. Now, some say that this was a sort of symbolic act on his hand, on his behalf. He was actually very interested in being uh, the Khalif, but we don't know. And then they offered it to him again, and he said, no, nope, not interested, dudes. And then they offered him a third time, and he finally accepted as uh to become Khalif. Now, Ali's reign as Khalif is quite interesting. He differed from Uthman in that he tried to return to the simplistic practices of Abu Bakr, Omar, and Muhammad. He was super egalitarian. He removed a lot of the Banu Umayya, the family members of Uthman that were appointed. He replaced them with competent uh, officials. Now, Remember that particular moment because we're going to revisit that in in the coming discussion about the crisis. Um, but let's take a quick moment and actually have a rapid fire round. Let's have a, a break because we've covered a, quite a bit of information. So rapid fire round. Succession is complicated. What should I know? You mentioned slaves. Did the Muslims have slaves? Who is your favorite khalif? And what were the weapons used? All right, let's answer these questions. So first, succession is complicated. What should I know? You're absolutely right. Succession is super complicated. And what you should know is that even though the caliphate developed after Muhammad, there was no clear definition of what the caliphate really was and that each caliph defined it for themselves. Abu Bakr defined it as custodianship. Uh, Omar defined it as uh, an individual who was to expand the boundaries of Islam and formalize its structure. Uthman developed a more dynastic approach and Ali tried to return it to the egalitarian uh, caliphate of Abu Bakr. It's also complicated by the fact that we really don't know what Muhammad intended to happen after him. Most Sunnis will claim one thing, Shia will claim another, and so it's lost to history. What we should know is that ambiguity is just the fact of history. And it's that ambiguity, that complication, that allows the conflict to arise. You mentioned slaves. Did the Muslims have slaves? And the answer is yes. Like all the pre-modern uh, empires of the world, slaves were part of the Muslim empire. The Roman Byzantines had them, the Sasanians had slaves, and in many places, uh, Islam would come in and not change much of the social structure of it, the cities that they took over. So slaves were there, freemen were there, governors often remained in place as long as tribute flowed, as long as the taxes were paid. In other instances, Muslims freed a lot of slaves that they encountered. And that's because in Islam itself, slavery is uh, a no-no. People, there's no clear abolition of slavery in Islam, but Muslims are encouraged in both the Quran and in Muhammad's teachings that they need to free slaves and that the freeing of slaves is actually one of the obligations uh, and charitable works that Muslims should be doing regularly. And it's why uh, people like Abu Bakr, Uthman, and Ali in particular freed lots and lots of slaves. That said, some Muslims, specifically noblemen, did have slaves. These slaves were different than the way we think of Atlantic, transatlantic, chattel slavery today. They are more in line with indentured servitude and it's contractual, but slavery did exist and it takes several and continues to be part of Muslim society for centuries to come, even though the religion of Islam says that slavery uh, should be removed or Muslims should free slaves. Who's my favorite Khalif? That's a given. Ali. He's my namesake. He's kind of badass. So he's my favorite Khalif. What were the type of weapons used? This is great because we were talking about assassinations. Let's discuss it. In the case of uh, um, 
Omar. He was killed with a knife strike by a Persian slave named Firuz. With Uthman, he was killed actually by a sword. In this particular time period, um, most people had swords. And swords, the quality of swords they had determined which rank they came from. The average soldier would have a really basic scimitar, a round shield, and a small dagger. All Arabs at this particular time carried daggers if they didn't carry swords. And daggers were ornamental. They had, uh, they were both utilitarian in that they were used, but they also had a very clear ornamental quality to them. They had gems, they were designed, and the more elaborate dagger that they had, the higher their status was. Some people also had famous swords. So Ali had a very unique sword known as Zulfikar, and then it was a two-pronged sword or a split sword, a sword that then split into two blades. Um, it was considered a legendary weapon of sorts. Most Arabian weapons had some form of curve to them. They were not stabbing weapons, but rather slicing weapons. This is likely because most of the battles were fought from camelback. It's hard to stab someone if you're charging. It's easier to slash if you're charging. And so this also contributed to their success militarily the muslim armies were very mobile they were able to move on camels and horses across vast distances over deserts and their fighting style was mobile fluid and constantly in motion very different from the fighting styles they encountered with the romans which were much more segmented much more uh, regimented the sasanians had similar weapons as the uh, Arabs did, though by that time they had exhausted themselves. All right, that was a weird nerd rant into weapons. We'll probably do a whole session on weapons of the of the Islamic world, but that'll be for another time. Let's get back into the meat of the story. Now, though Ali was elected, there were still a lot of disgruntled peeps. That's right, I use the word peeps and I'm not ashamed of it. Factions of Muslims demanded that Ali seek out the rebels who had assassinated Uthman and bring them to justice. But there was just one problem. Many of those rebels were actually supporters of Ali. They formed a portion of the base that got him elected. So Ali was hesitant, and his hesitation and the growing anger over Uthman's assassination led to civil war. Now the reason people were so disgruntled about this was Uthman was the first Khalif to be assassinated by a Muslim. Whereas Omar had been assassinated by a Persian slave, okay, we can chop that up to just bad luck, Uthman's death was considered an affront to the unity of Muslims, especially to the notions of justice, solidarity, and peace that were at the heart of the Muslim community, especially a hard-won peace that uh, was brought about by Abu Bakr and and by Muhammad before him. And so there was a whole faction that emerged that desired justice. And this new army that developed was led by Zubair and Talha. You'll remember both of them as the committee members that were appointed by Umar, as well as the widow of Muhammad, Aisha, his youngest widow. These three led an army to find the perpetrators. Ali had moved the capital of his new state from Medina to Kufa. This new army, this army of, of justice seekers, we'll call them, reached Basra and it captured it. Basra was in modern-day Iraq. And there, they found a strong number of the seditionists and they 
attacked and killed the seditionists. They thought that what they were doing was an act of justice. But Ali couldn't let this stand either. On the same note, you have this basically another rebel army seeking the original rebels. So you have these rebel factions fighting within the Muslim community. This becomes known as, this becomes the beginning of what is known as the first fitna. Fitna means tribulation, means conflict, means strife, means sectarianism. The first fitna is really essentially the first civil war. So Ali raises his own army, he raises his own army, and he goes to meet the army of Zubair, Talha, and Aisha. Now, originally, these two were meant to actually just negotiate. But according to some historical records, like that of Ibn Tabari, al-Tabari and Ibn Ashaq, what we hear is that the rebels who killed Uthman agitated and therefore caused a fight to break out between the followers of Ali and the followers of the uh, justice seekers, we'll call them, the justice seekers of Islam, kind of like the Avengers or the Justice League, <laughs> but in the pre-modern world. I know these nerd illusions are getting over the top, but I can't help myself. So you have this sort of just this wannabe Justice League of the Islamic world versus Ali, and they end up fighting one another in what's called the Battle of the Camel. Now, there's something really cool and interesting that happens here. Aisha, the widow of Muhammad, actually leads a charge. She's not hiding or she's not sitting behind the lines, contrary to kind of notions of, of women being secluded. She leads the battle from on top of her camel. Ali wins the battle. He puts an end to the fighting, and he makes peace. He comes to an agreement with all three of them. And all three of them, these, this kind of justice league of the Muslim world, and Ali make their peace and set aside their differences. But here's the thing. Even though they come to terms, that doesn't mean that the disgruntled forces or factions are satiated. One of the things that Ali did was that he removed a lot of the family members of Uthman, the Banu Umayyah, and replaced them. So the Banu Umayyah were pissed off that they had lost a lot of their privilege, that they had lost wealth, that they had lost their positions. And so invoking the death of Uthman and demanding that they find some form of justice for him, they in turn rise up against Ali. And Muawiyah, who was the governor of Syria, a huge faction uh, in the former Byzantine territories, gathers his army and marches against Ali. Now, why does this matter? Ali had set up is set up in what is modern-day Iraq. Muawiyah is coming from what is modern-day Syria. If any of you remember, a few podcasts ago or a few episodes ago, we talked about the Red Sea Wars and how the Arab tribes were divided between the Byzantine Empire and the Sasanian Empire. Well, the Arabs of Iraq were those who were closely associated with the Sasanian Empire, where the Arabs of Syria were those who were closely associated with the Byzantine Empire. So in a certain way, even though you have these two factions fighting one another over legitimacy, over succession, over trying to find justice for Uthman's killers, at least that's what they claim, the reality is that there is a historical grievance between these two 
regions between the Arabs of Syria and the Arabs of Iraq. And so the Red Sea Wars once more continues to haunt the early formations of Islam. These two forces meet in battle in what is known as the First True Fitna, the First Civil War. Now we're going to stop here because I don't want to go into the full Civil War. We're going to talk about that next week, but we're going to find out what ends up eventually happening is that Ali gets assassinated himself, and Muawiyah, who was the relative of uh, Uthman, becomes the new Khalif, and he does something quite unique. He breaks away with the traditions of the Rashidun, and he establishes a dynastic caliphate. Those that are within the Banu Umayyah become the new Khalifs. This is a great departure from the Rashidun Khalifs. But this gives birth to the first true Muslim dynasty and is also really the first Arab dynasty. And that is known as the Umayyads. So we're going to talk about the Umayyads a little bit next week. But now you know the historical context for the civil war and the rise of the Umayyads. The tension between Ali and Uthman. We're going to discuss further what happens in the civil war, what happens with Ali, and we're going to talk about the reign of the Umayyads. I'm not going to focus too much on the big caliphs of the Umayyads. I'm not going to talk a lot about one caliph after the other because I think that can be a little bit boring. And if you're interested, you can always find these biographies online. Instead, what I want to do is talk about the Umayyads from a social history perspective, from a cultural history perspective. What impact did they have on Islam? What impact did they have on the societies that they were forming? Ali and Uthman had huge impacts on their societies. Uthman is the one who really brought about the economic reformation of the Muslim Caliphate, brought in its mercantile and trading roots, as well as formalized and authorized the official Quran that Abu Bakr had collected at the death of Muhammad. Ali, on the other hand, became a symbol of an attempt to return to pure politics, an attempt to make the caliphate simplistic, to make it pious, and it contested with the politics of Muawiyah, who was very openly dynastic and interested in power. And that shapes, that difference between the two of them, between Muawiyah and Ali, between those who eventually accept the Umayyads and those who reject all the caliphates except for Ali, becomes the root of the Sunni and Shia division. It's important to note that neither Sunnism nor Shiism has fully developed this, this particular point. The Shiatul Ali, or the followers of Ali, still accepted Abu Bakr, Omar, and Uthman, even though they think that Ali was supposed to be the rightly appointed caliph, they still accept the other three. And it isn't until many years later, and a result of tensions with the Umayyads, that we start to see polemics emerge. But the political division that we see between Ali and those who are trying to reestablish or reinstate a sort of Banu Umayyah hegemony becomes the root of the sectarian differences that is later given doctrinal and theological elements. And we're going to talk about the rise of Sunnism and Shiism, but that doesn't happen for another couple hundred years. So we're going to end here with the first fitna and the death of Ali. Ali was assassinated by the very rebels that uh, supported him. We're going to talk about his death in the next episode, so be sure to tune in. Let's go over really quickly some book recommendations, and then we'll call it a night. 
So I actually only have two recommendations. You can also read the books that I recommended from last week. But the two that I would like to add that really talk about what the, the kind of divisions within the Muslim community and the rise of the Rashidun, we talked about uh, Hugh Kennedy's book last week on, on the Rashidun Caliphate. That still stands for this week. But I'd like to add to that Wilfred Midelung, who is a German scholar of Islam, uh, one of the old Orientalists, his book, The Succession to Muhammad, which was written in 1997, if I'm not mistaken, is a really great book. Um, it's a sort of revisionist look at, at the early history of Islam. What it tries to do is move away from the standard story that we all know and instead introduce uh, a great deal of historical inquiry. Um, and in many ways, the, his approach um, is something that I try to bring to this podcast by introducing history uh, into what is normally a theological debate. And so his book, The Succession to Muhammad, is absolutely great for understanding that history. I'll also recommend Leslie, and I'm going to probably mispronounce her name, Leslie Hazelton. She's a British writer. Uh, she wrote a book called After the Prophet, The Epic Story of the Sunni-Shia Split in Islam. Now, she's not an, a, a professional historian, but she is a writer. And her book isn't uh, academic, but it is still pretty rigorous um, uh, from a scholastic point of view. So even though it's not an academic book per se, it's still a really great, well-researched book. Um, if you're coming from one particular point of view, you may find yourself um, you may find yourself disagreeing with her at times. But she does a fantastic job at really telling the story from multiple angles and getting you absorbed in the split, not moralizing who was right or who was wrong, or even trying to judge from a theological level. So I would recommend those two books um, and. On that note, we're going to end the podcast. Uh, it was, once again, enjoyable to spend these 30 minutes or so talking about a topic I'm very interested in. I hope you were enjoying the podcast, and if you are, do please leave a review and some feedback on iTunes, um, as well as get in contact with me vis-a-vis -vis social media. Thanks for tuning in. Stay smart, beautiful nerds. <laughs>